you probably guess I'm really used to to Zoom, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome back to the Pelador podcast. Ross Trainer, which is always, and joining me is Michael Dunn. Michael, how are you? All good, Ross, and yourself? Any crack? No, very little now. We're in the run into Christmas. How yeah. are you fixed? Getting in the festive spirit now. Week, week left for, for the holidays now, so I can't complain. Yeah, but of course, you you teachers have holidays most of the year round, so it's, you know. <laughs> we'll leave that at that. <laughs> Desperate. Joining us for this podcast yeah. is an absolute all-time legend of the GAA, I'm not even going to try and list off all his achievements or all his accomplishments. I was just going to let everyone knows him as Sean. Sean Boylan, how are you? Very well, thanks, Ross. Good to see you. See you. Uh, uh, look, now this is good crack. This is good. To talk, it's lovely to talk to you. Like it's, it's December. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Y'all still have to be played. So listen, there's an awful lot to be talked about, and uh, the very fact that uh, we're well and we're able to be here and looking on, it's. Uh, you know, the exciting news, you know, seeing sort of how Liverpool Water is going to go and then Dublin Mayo then as well after that. And then, of course, the ladies' matches. So there's so much on, really. And there's so much to be thankful for. Um, there's so many people who would just love this time of the year to be out in the field and hear the boys out in Troll Park. Nobody hassling them or posting them or saying you shouldn't be here, you shouldn't be there. They've earned the right to be there and that's the way it is. You know yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Sean, yeah. would you ever, if you could only go to one final this year, would it be the hurling or the football? I honestly, God, would love to go to the hurling. I love the hurling, anyhow. Love to go. Yeah. And uh, and then come next week, I want to go to the football as well. We take this one for a start. I was lucky enough as a, as a young fellow, my father got to go to it. Was that the last time Waterford won all Ireland? It was an amazing time, like all those years ago, back in the fifties. And um, the young man and. Um, uh, it was a very special time, and the lads like Tom Chasey and Frankie, Frankie Walsh, and um, they were they were just they were great men. But it's hard to believe when you look back that it is so long ago, and yet that's the glory, I suppose, of the sport we play. And I was lucky enough to play for Meath Hurlers for twenty one years, and oh, we have great times and we have great memories. And um, you know, playing Leash, playing awfully, and a few times we played we played them. Um, uh, Dublin and we played um, Kilkenny one day bet us 33 points at Crow Park and we're coming off the field <laughs> and the flip, flip Garrigan said to me he said you know Sean you weren't so bad oh yes I flipped <laughs> <laughs> we'll have we can go out tomorrow and try and get better and, that, and that's the way it is and that's the glorious thing about it like um, the funny thing is people sort of give out to you sometimes if you're beaten I think the time you're really beaten is the time you don't care anymore the time you don't want to do it and um it just takes all these extraordinary times. So you look in over the last sort of five years of some of the hurlers that have played with Waterford who would give their eye tooth to yeah. be out there, you know, on, on, out, out there against Limerick. And yet, I remember I was racing go-karts in the Phoenix Park in 1973, the day that Limerick were beaten. Um, Limerick beat Kilkenny. It poor that day and couldn't wait for the race to be over to go and watch the hurling. You know what I mean? And... Uh, down the road at the other side of Crow Park now you have Ned Ray's pub and he was playing of course on that particular day and so on and the memories of all those Richie Benison um, you know they, 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 they're just extraordinary times you know just extraordinary times and so to be involved in any sort of sport at any sort of of a, of a competitive level is a great thing because thousands can play but not thousands can compete and I suppose 
that can be essentially the difference between winning and losing because if, if you get the collective that you have enough people with you, it will go through hell and fire and brimstone to get you out the far side. But then look, that's a, it gives you a great chance. But if, but if it doesn't work out, you're not a failure. You had a go and that's it. And Sean, you have a mead man playing on Sunday for Waterford. Yeah, and, and he's a good one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, he's, and he's a good one. And um, oh, he's from Rapaline Club and... Um, Oh, he was always he was always a great hurler, and I often wonder. I often think of his career, and I think of um, he going to Carlo IT, and I think DJ might have been have an influence on him there. I think he might have been the coach there, you know. But it just shows you that, given the circumstances, it doesn't matter where you're from. Like people wouldn't think, you know, that Sean O'Gahad being, you know, the father was the father was from was from Fermanagh, um, Eddie Kerr. His father was from Fermanagh. You know, you never really think of them as hurling places, you know what I mean? Mm. But it's the environment that is created and uh, what Liam has done with the lads to, to bring these boys together. It, it, like, it's, it's remarkable to see the way they're playing and the way they're throwing their lot in behind it and so on. And then I think of sort of Keane Lynch, you know, um, and, you know, have lost sort of an uncle last week and so on. He was a great player and everything else. Um, Again, it's all Ireland day and anything can happen. And I remember when um, Richie Bennett was training the, the Limerick lads and they were in the All Ireland final. And there was a corporate night uh, down in, in um, Han. And I went down for the crackdowns, the lads. And um, just as I arrived, the lads in St. Brendan's Club in Manchester rang looking for an interview about the All Ireland football. And I said, Hold on, I'll give you a better one. I put you on to Richie Bennett and he was saying the Limerick team. And the boys, I, I was over in February last, I was over in, in, with that club in, in uh, Manchester, and they're a great gay club. And uh, oh, the lads still talk about that night, about Richie Bennis. Like, if you tried to set it up, you couldn't. Yeah. Can, you imagine, can you imagine any other sport in the world, a week or so before the major, the major competition, that the manager would get out of his car and sit down and talk to the lads across the water in, in St. Brendan's in Manchester? And I suppose... They're the glorious thing still about um, that amateur ethos and so on. People just do things like that. And I suppose, you know, there was a problem last week. I see you carried a great problem on, on Jack Charlton, one of the best ones I've ever seen. And um, why was it? Because the man was so humble. He was such a great player. Um, you know, he wins a World Cup. And he's the most unassuming man. Like, there was more than, look, he'd be playing a match and at the same time, you can tell him about Merseyside fishing in a couple of days' time. But, was, you know, but like, and that was his fun. And the, the football, in his case, was was football. His was his job. And I remember Gareth Thomas um, one time we were over in Toulouse training for um, an international route, and um, Gareth Thomas and, and Trevor Brennan came to the training session. And um, Gareth Thomas was the first Welsh man to get a hundred caps. You take it over from Brian Driscoll when Brian got spear tackled and everything else mm. and he was a great player and a very shy man and I, um, I remember asking him afterwards we're all having a boy tea together and when you could have a boy tea together right? <laughs> and, uh, uh, I said what was it like to get you know to pick get picked for Wales ah he said he started talking about what it was like playing for rugby for his club yeah. and he said all my people they're all minors my father he said my grandfather they all worked down the shaft. They all worked in the mines. And they couldn't wait to get out, come up out of the shaft to clear the lungs by playing rugby. 
and the passion that grew up about that. And he went on to talk then about, you know, getting picked for his club. And then he gets picked for Wales. And me, Carl Thomas. And he's given the cap, as they call it, which was the jersey, to bring home and to try it on because it was his first cap. And he goes home and he puts on the jersey and he stands in front of the mirror and he closes the buttons and he opens the buttons and he closes them again. And he said, I did my hair red hair at the time. <laughs> and he said, I was the real bollocks. He said, I looked at myself in the mirror, right? And, um, and then he said, in the mirror, in the mirror, he said, I just looked. And in that mirror, I could see my father, I could see my grandfather and see everybody belonging to me. And that particular moment, he said, changed my life from then on in sport. Every day I was standing in front of that mirror and say, I am Gareth Thomas and I can only be who I am. And he proved that afterwards. And I can't be anybody else. And the same in sport, that even in a dressing room, even when playing for Wales, playing for my club, you know, it didn't make the size to play for the Lions. Every time I'm in that dressing room, there's at least two minutes for me that nobody can distract me, for me to be me, and me to, first of all, learn to trust myself as a person and then as a player. And I just thought, what a lesson to learn, what a lesson in humility and the fact that, you know, the old Apache thing, we are who we are, but we are who we were also. You're just brilliant. And they're the, the great thing. And he was really shy about talking to us, and we'd none shy at all, we'd won nothing, you know what I mean? <laughs> but again, just, just glad to do it. And Trevor, Brennan puts across the water to me. He says, Sean, this is from this area here. It, that's in Toulouse, you see. And I turn the bottle around and it says, used by April 1990. All right, or 2019. You know what I mean? And he said, feck off. He said, so, you know, the water's been there for a thousand years, but suddenly you have to drink it before a certain date. Because when he was a young fella, when I was a young fella, you went to the well or you went to the road and you got the tap and you got a drink of water. You had to go and buy it. You know, in a in a bottle, you know, and and so on. The first time I remember there was a club called the Good Time Charlies in Dublin years ago, and I I happen to be yeah you know, don't drink and then um, and yet I spent more time probably in pubs with lads and because of the crack of the Gaelic and so on football as well and um, just then um, I said no I tell you what I I have a glass of water and to play a pound for for a, for a bottle of water. Jeez, I nearly died. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> End of the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah and I'm a manager. First time I became a football manager. <laughs> this and that. How you, where you find yourself in life is gas. Um, uh, his son was on last night. He was uh, from Kilkenny and from the castle areas. Involved in uh, uh, singing a couple of pieces by Mozart. And uh, great, great night for him. And a great occasion for ourselves and so on. And... Um, Four minutes beforehand, I get a text from Jerry McEntee. Now, this is opera, right? And from Jerry, was, are you all set? Well, is he, you know, he's ready for, is he ready for, is he ready for the game to start, ready for the throw in? It didn't matter if it was an orchestra was going to be playing, he was going to be singing. So whatever you're doing, you can relate it to football, to hurling, to sport, or whatever it is. That's, listen, it's good to talk to you. I, I'm rambling on, sorry about this. Go on. So, <laughs> no, was, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. not. Come here, Sean. You have yourself a new job, I believe. Lads, look, I'm waiting on the car. The money's great. For um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how long. Uh, you know, most of the people in down who would really know me well, Hugh O'Frey, Hugh Dorian, um, 
Betty Crawford, Brenda Crawford, um, some of the lads from Portaferry and Ballygallagher were all hurling areas because my first first time I played was in Newcastle in 1963 and uh, was against Down uh, at senior level. And I was, you know, this stage I'm heading for 19 years of age. And um, the friendships that I built with, up those lads, with those lads in hurling over the years was extraordinary. And then through afterwards with the involvement in football and then with they kindly robbed us in 1991, what can I do? You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah. That friendship was there. And on a serious note, um, Conor Laverty would be a great friend of mine. Marky Clark would be a great friend of mine. And like I would have had sort of Bendy Coulter and so on with, with the international rules and so on. But there's a friendship with the lads. And I suppose the fact being that Conor, like he's a sheep farmer as well, is looking after the lads and the kids, young lads and young ones in, in Trinity, you know, as a gay, as a gay man there. But he's a mountain, he's a mountain man. And uh, he's a great connection with Akka. Um, our second son, Kieran, um, doing a doctrine trilogy, but he still plays football for Ackham. He loves the place. And uh, just uh, there's a great connection there with our families and so on. And just a simple thing. Look, um, would you mind giving us a hand, you know, just in the background, as I was fortunate enough to have been with Nile Moyne with DC over the years for a few years. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. But I found with those younger players that were there, they were like sponges and they were highly intelligent. And, you know, years ago, you were told what to do. Now, you sit down, you talk to them, you plant the idea, you say to them, go and think about that and come back to me in a couple of days. And I love that. And when I was asked about Nile Moines to do DCU a few years ago, I said, Nile, are you mental? I said, look at the age profile. He said, I'm not talking about the age profile. He said, I'm just talking, would you come out? So I went out on a Tuesday night and, uh, my wife Tina said to me when I come back, she said, Look, uh, what do you think? I'll tell you I said on Thursday night and go back on Thursday night. On <laughs> <laughs> Thursday night when I came back, she said, What do you think? Well, the first thing I'd say is what I've said to you about the lads being like sponges and how lovely they were and brilliant. And yeah. um, the second thing was I love the idea that the collegial thing that our son lived 20 minutes away in Dogwell County Meet by car. And I'm saying, I wish he was on campus to, to experience what a lot of the young students this year can't experience, mm -hmm. that meet of other people, that meeting of minds, um, that learning together, like, let that be, that is having a drink or going, do whatever you want to do, trying other things, but exploring life and, and um, you know, giving yourself to go to a different horizon, seeing the mountain and getting up there and so on. And, the situation with Connor was very simple when he just asked me, Connor Laverty, and um, I thought about it. And the next day, I, rang him, I just spoke to my own family because, um, you know, it's um, it's nowadays you have to be just so careful with the COVID and so on. And they said, "Look, you, we know you'd be careful, and you know they'd be careful, and um, we think it'd be good for you." And I then realised they want to get me out of the house. I'm in the way. <laughs> You might as well annoy somebody else. <laughs> so, and again, it's, it's a great age group. Like, I, I, you know, um, I didn't think any more about it than that. I'm not, look, I'm honored to be even thought about it and even asked. And look, we'll enjoy the nine or 10 weeks, whatever it is. And that's, and that's, and that's it. And hopefully we'll all learn from each other. And come here, Sean, what, what's your role actually? Is it coaching or is it management or is it, do you know? No, I'm, I'm just in the background. Uh, Connor and Martin Clark and then they're looking after all that and I'm just and they're maybe having a word here and there with the lads 
you know, and, and, and that's it. And it's what asked me about because, like, when you've been around, the one thing I would have learned from having played for me for so long and then coming in as a coach or trainer. And the reason I came in and meet in the first place was because at the, there was difficulty in getting somebody to do it. And it killed me at the time that it wasn't going to happen. And eventually, Brian Smith got me going to as a county board chairman. Captain first meeting to win all Ireland, who won the second one with him, but he was played hurling for me as well, won a junior all Ireland hurling with him as well. And Brian said, Look, have a go to for a few weeks. And I said, Right, and have a go for a few months until you get somebody. And I'm a bad timekeeper. I was there for a long time. You know what I mean? But, and that was the way it was. But it was amazing how, you know, you get a little bit of luck. Your first match was in a Riley Cup below in um, the Cliff down in, and, uh, you know, Rocky will tell me because his people are from down there. You know what I mean? That, and that, that's, that's where I learned the trade. And of course it was because every, every, every ground you go to, every match you, you go to, you learn all the time. And that would have been always like a sponge for information. But I always, I, the one thing I was always good at, I was good to know what I did, what I didn't know. And I didn't mind asking. And I didn't mind um, if, uh, um, like, sometimes you might seem weak, but I'd be very good to say, listen, look, I'll find out. And that's the way it was. And then, and there's a couple of years involved with me that we had a bit of success with getting to Division One, the league, and we got one the Centenary Cup. And, um, it was um, it was a great experience, the first open draw in the history of the game, and to see this year the way the championship went back, and in another way, part of me said, "God, I'd love to have seen an open draw this year." You know what yeah. I mean? And yet, be thankful for what we've had, you know, and because it's gone so well. But we came along and we thought we were going great because we got to a Leicester final in 1984. We had won the Centenary Cup, beaten the league semi final. Actually, geez, we were well on our way. We, we really thought we were getting places. <laughs> then we played Leash the following year in the Leicester Championship. Oh, Lord Jesus, we stopped Tom Brown, Big John Costello. We just stopped that, you know, the two Dempseys. There were so many lads, and they kicked the living daylights out of the better 10 points. And suddenly, below in, in, in Tullamore, people are saying, Oh, sure, sure they're only like a crowd of old women. They're no good. <laughs> then someone, someone come up with the right, so how could they? She a man's a hurler. He doesn't know anything about it. <laughs> But a very interesting thing happened though, that I don't mind, I've told it before, but it's the truth. Um, I arrived in home one night and I lived with my mother, got to go to her. And um, Jerry Magdy, Colin O'Rourke, um, Liam Hayes, Joe Cassis, Mick and Porrig Lines were sitting in the kitchen when I arrived in home. Didn't know they were coming. Drink a tea and eat brown bread with my mother. You <laughs> won't see the lads with the mother smoking. Honest to God. Puffing <laughs> through like a haze in front of them. Anyhow, um, we came, I came in, the crack was great. And then, typical, the mother, she said, now, up the house you now, up the house you crowd now, go on up there now, said, sort out whatever you have to sort out. And we went up the house, and we did talk about where we were, where we had come from in a few years, and the possibility of where we might go to. Naturally, um, never having played football for me, lucky enough to have played at a very high level, within club level, and loved it. And... Hurling mad, um, there's there's always you always question well maybe if somebody else was there maybe we would have done it differently or whatever it was, and um, party lines just said to me mixed bullet party, said Charlie you might ever say something to you I said what, will you put your shyness in your arse pocket, I said are you serious he said I am, and then he said the little bollocks dropping me but. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
but he did tell you that he had pulled that pulled a hamstring before a match. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it, but that's what changed everything because from then on, the chairs were drowned in a circle. And why they went around in a circle was because a you never can tell a player a lie. Um, it might be working out at the time, but like you have to say it as it is. And that allowed them to say things to me sitting down in that circle that maybe before this they might have said, or maybe I might have taken umbrage out or whatever it was, but also allowed me to say things I needed to say as well. And, you know, Pat Reynolds and Tony Brennan, who were two legends of Meath football, they both came in with me as selections and so on. But that was the night that Meath football for me changed because from then on, um, it was a collective responsibility. And um, people wouldn't believe that in 1986, for me, won a Leinster. Colin O'Rourke was 12 years on the Meath team. Joe Castle was 14 years on it. And Jerry McAtee was 13 years. And they had won nothing, per se. But they had, like, Joe had won a National League in 1975. But it was a long time not to win anything. And um, the night before we won that Leinster, then, in 1986, Frankie Byrne, God bless him, was a member of the first Meath team to win All-Ireland um, in 1949. Frankie came down to the trainings, he always did with me. And he said to me, he said, Sean, would you mind if I say a few words? Now, the week of a match, I always hated somebody outside coming in. I don't care how bad you are as a coach, a manager, whatever. If you've got that far together, don't upset the apple cart, this collective thing. And I looked at Frankie and I said, yeah, okay, Frankie. And he stood up. And at this stage, 1986, there's a long time since 1949. And he stood up and he said, lads, I want to say something to you. Because we were the first meet team to win in All-Ireland, we'll go down in history. We're like, we're, it, we're in folklore. And as far as lots of people are concerned, we never a team like us. But I want to say something to you. We wouldn't keep the ball kicked out to you. That's how good you are, if you only believe it. And that was an extraordinary thing because the next evening have won the have won the have won the, the championship nine points to seven. Four of the lads said to me, "Wasn't well, that extraordinary?" What Frankie said, and it was an extraordinarily honourable thing for him to say. Well, Frankie wouldn't have said it if he didn't mean it. That's the sort of man he was because that truth to yourself is true to yourself. You can't change that. So that's why we're here, lads. I'm I'm here. I'm waiting for you for you to start telling me. The mistakes I'm making, having a go, going up, getting involved with loud, or getting involved, getting involved with, with County Down. Is that it's exclusive no, now? You're going with Mickey Hart down to loud as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, again, like I see, um, you know, I saw what happened with Kildare with Miko. You know what I mean? And anybody who can help you, you know, to get you to where you want to, to reach that holy grail, that's that's just that's, that's just a great thing. Now, in the case of Mike, like Mick O'Dwyer was manager, Mickey Hart is manager. I'm just going in with lads who are happy to be friends of mine, ready to be like a sponge to learn more from these young down lads and everything else. And maybe there's another thing here or there that might help them to crack where they would find themselves stuck. And that happens. And I would have seen it. This is why some of the things in the day of the matches nowadays, I found really hard to take in that... I can't understand before a match why lads want to start jumping into each other and milling each other and so on. You hold, to me, you hold that for the match itself because it doesn't start until the whistle is blown. And I would see the two selections that I would have had with me 
sort of Tony Brennan and Pat Reynolds and then when Amy O'Brien and Frank Foley came to me, all I want them before the match was, I was out with the lads and listen, a word here and a word there, a word of encouragement. I want no bollocking. I want none of that. Like, like, there's no need for it. There's no point in breaking glasses and knocking the walls down and so on. Just be clear in your head. And if you're clear in your head and you've done the preparation and the application is there, well, you know, it's amazing what collectively you can do together. But doing it together is the essence of what we would have seen with the GA during the whole COVID. It's extraordinary. The way it, it was the catalyst. It helped so many, like, when you think of all the people who played in the failure this year, there wasn't one case of COVID. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like 70,000 kids or whatever. And like, and that's the collective responsibility. And the same happens when you're playing. And the big factor is about more than anything else is um, you need the, bit of the rub of the green. You need that bit of luck as well. And, um, but the more you try to, try to get it right, um, the more luck you create for yourself. Absolutely. Speaking of the rub of the green, the rub of the green and gold, did uh, Mead not come looking, looking for your services at any point, Sean? Uh, I, I would never stop. Um, I, 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 I love Mead. I love everything to do with it. Um, and you've got to understand like that um, they came up against a great Dublin team. We didn't perform. We didn't perform to the way we liked to perform. Now, that's a nightmare for Andy McAdee and his selectors. But it's a bigger nightmare for the lads who were on the field to play. Or maybe the ones who didn't get a chance to play or weren't brought in or whatever. And um, would I have talked to different people about it beforehand and afterwards? Never would stop talking about it. But again, it's a different era and they're different lads and so on. And like um, someday they will crack it. But like people get hard to believe it over 20 years ago. Dublin couldn't field another 21 football team. That's hard to believe, but that's a fact. You know, the McGrath report sort of in 2002, that changed everything in Dublin. And there were, like it, it, and suddenly, like in the South Side, there was nobody, nobody playing hurling. And look at Kula, two Ireland clubs, you know. And that's what you can do as a collective if you do it right together. And that means, uh, that, means that um, we have a right to pass on the knowledge we have um, we don't own the individuals, they own themselves. And our job really is more than anything else, and I would have seen it with my own county this year, understanding this can weigh you down, these defeats can weigh you down if you let it. But that chance to have a go again, never let that be too far away from where you are. And just understand a good player just to become a bad footballer overnight. And if you go out and throw park, let it be against Dublin or against Kerry or against Leash or against Offaly, whoever it is, whoever it is. Like if somebody was to say to me, having been at the three Galway all you know, so 64, 5 and 6, that they would wait 32 years before they would win another all Ireland. I'd say you are mad. Like, and that's, and, that's, and that's the way it is. But there's no sense of entitlement. People say you deserve it. Yeah, okay, you deserve to have a go. But there's no entitlement, and you've got to earn that. And um, and that's really, that's from the bottom of my heart. Like that's that's the way it is. Um, nobody's going to hand it to you. You're going to have to earn it. And when it's hard and it's tough, and it's been a nightmare for you, and you turn it around, then there's a huge satisfaction. But don't walk away from it. And um, you know, did me ever come to me? Of course we did. Of course we talked. 
and um, all, and would have helped out maybe with underage and everything else of developing things. Of course, I would. And any help, every any one of the lads ever in the life that I could be to them, I would be to them. But like Sean Boyle never won the All Ireland. I was involved with teams that won the All Ireland. You know what I mean? But I was also involved with three teams who were beaten in All Irelands. Like and like it's it's um it's it's a very humbling time. And that's why um uh, sometimes it just is collectively just pulling it together. The other thing I would have a huge thing about, I get worried about panels that are too big. I really get worried about that. Um, never really believed in it. I believed in bringing lots of lads who were on the fringe or felt that they would nearly make it. Bring them in maybe at the weekend for matches or a match that you're playing, maybe five or six, put them in among them, make the lads understand nobody's going to give them a free ball. But I never believed in the huge panel because I always wanted whoever was there to feel that they're all going to be on the field. Like when you have 30 lads or 35 or maybe up to 40 and you have because of 20 lads who are going to be in the dressing room are going to be there with you, haven't worked with you and they're not going to get a minute on the field. I couldn't cope with that. I couldn't, I couldn't turn, I couldn't look, I look back around and see a crowd of lads behind me and that I wouldn't play them. And that, that's really difficult. But I believe I believe, you know, I've solved with Dublin in the 80s, in the 90s, before they made this huge breakthrough that they did, that, at the, you know, the panel was picked for the day and that panel, and the other lads went to watch the matches or whatever, or they went to play for the club. And that's fierce important. In all the years that we, we would have been involved, the lads would have always played league football with the clubs. And like, um, we were lucky in the early days for so long, it was a knockout system, like up as far as 2001. And then, um, you know, that idea that you had a second chance, that would never have entered into your head. Now, it's been brilliant, the back doors, they call it. It's opened up the doors for so many. But the problem that I would have seen over the years is that the stronger got stronger and the weaker are in trouble. And it's, uh, and so somewhere along the line, we'll have to bring in the granny rule or whatever it is. And, you, know, <laughs> yeah, like, like, look, you take some of the extraordinary players holding a football who are on brilliant teams. If they could play if they could play with a team that's weaker, you know, for a couple of years, I have to have, have to bring them on. Um, I think there would be huge merit in it. I'm not looking for a transfer system, you know what I mean? But like, <laughs> when we talk about the parish rule, parish has changed so much. The population has changed so much. Like, my mother got to go to us from Clune and Leitrim. Um, uh, my uncle Jim lived in Longford. There were 30,000 people there when Jim was there. That's all you had in the place, you know? And uh, that's very hard to cope. But John Horn was very honest the other day and he was on the late late. And uh, Pat Gilroy was on with Andy McAdee last week, like on Sunday game. Uh, the, and, and he was talking about, you know, there's 30,000 people playing football in Dublin and Hurling. But look at the population. And he's saying, to, he's saying, what about the other million? When are we going to be able to cap, cap into that and give them a chance? So there may be a whole new structure may need to change there. And the way we look at it, because the urban areas have got so big, and yet we can't. Like Kerry had a great, have a great, had a great system. We used to have in parts of me where you had the regional teams as well. You know when they were, when that's were locked out, and there's a lot to be said for that. But that takes organisation. Anyhow, listen, as I got hard to run the chain. Never mind run the county ball. I'm, <laughs> I'm rambling on. I'm sorry. Not at all, Sean. So come here. I wanna. I'm not not skipping anything, but like. 
the international rules was something that sort of came late in your in your managerial career. Yeah. But yeah. it's something that you really seem to, you know, in, enthusiasm you and just it just seemed to really sort of float your boat. Yeah. Um, it just it, it, it's the culmination, a couple of wins as well. Like it just and you, yeah. the, the meeting of so many talented footballers and talented people from all yes. around the country who all wanted to be there. Now, that's that's a difficult job in itself, trying to mould all these players together in a, such a short space of time. Yeah. Um, what a brilliant time. Uh, when I was asked by Nicky Brown, couldn't believe it. And uh, hugely honoured. Um, you know, Hugh Kenny, the bomber, Anthony Toll, uh, Pauly Joyce, getting to work with these lads, it just was extraordinary because they were brilliant players, but they were brilliant managers as well. And they were very, they were great coaches. And, um, I'm begging your pardon, go to coffee, excuse me. <laughs> <coughs> they were, it was, I think it's a brilliant game. The first time I saw the Aussies play was in 68 and they played against me and, um, in February. And it was amazing. Me to come back, they'd gone to a trip to Australia, played five matches out there. But the skill that they brought to the game, the athleticism and everything else. And suddenly the Irish lads realised that they had a huge, there was a huge amount in them as well. And they loved the fact that they were playing against, like as the Aussies were then, semi-professional. And uh, they learned to cope as a collective. And that was brilliant because you had lots of lads who were, who were playing hurling and football, and everything, but particularly in football. And they weren't getting a chance to play like at interprovincial level for whatever reason. But getting picked to play for Ireland was extraordinary. And I remember it's amazing like when it started, Peter McDermott was the first manager, and um uh, Jody O'Neill from Tyrone and Yaman Young from Cork was selector. And uh, they they were fantastic. And I remember then sort of Kevin Heffern came in as manager and Eugene McGee and Colin O'Rourke and Paul Early and so on. But like, you know, you had uh, Pete McGrath, um, it, like they were all ex like Joe's, Joe Kerry, it's just so many people. And the one thing that they would all say, the, uh, the honour for the lads to play for the country was absolutely huge. Now, were there things that happened in the games that shouldn't happen? Yeah, because um, people had pride. And um, the fact that letting these uh, amateur players, you know, uh, beat the Australians, it hurt the pride of a lot of the Aussies, you know what I mean, we should be, we're the strong men and so on. And 2006 was a great blown goal, it was incredible. And we come up to Crow Park and there's 82,000 people. And poor big Jim Steins and uh, Kevin Sheedy and myself met on the Friday before the second match. And we talked about the things that could not happen. And the game goes to start and there's 11 rows start before the match, before the whistle was thrown in. And I walked down the, the, the I walked down the sideline where I was, wasn't supposed to go outside the, the, the third mark. And I went to Kevin and Jim Goblin and I said, lads, we've made a balls of it. We'll never be forgiven. And, um, and it was a crying shame because um, that shouldn't have happened, but it happened. And two years later, to get the chance to go back out to Australia, um, and you know, from Leighton Glynn, it's like those lads that just suddenly all arrived, you know what I mean? And the way they danced on the field, the way they played on the field, and um, 
you see Tom Parsons and he's still playing. And people said to me I was mad when I brought him to Australia. You know, you take uh, Aaron Kernan going to Australia. You take, you know, um, uh, Paul Finley, his father, Jack, God be good to him. Like, you know, that opportunity of playing with Ireland. Um, John Miskell from Cork. Yes, you had Graeme Canty. Yes, Sean Cavanaugh was captain. Yes, you had, the, you had, you had Kieran Donaghy and Finian Hanley. So many of these lads. But to, to come together as a collective, like Benny Coulter, Steve McDonnell, like, they were all so good. Kevin Riley, David Gallagher in the goals. They just, um, they were just extraordinary men. But I'll tell you what it means to people. <clears throat> Tyrone won the All Ireland. First training session after the All Ireland was in Dunboyne. The first real being together with the team. And um, five Tyrone lads arrived down. They had won the All Ireland. Five of them arrived down to, for the training. First men there. They wanted to play for Ireland. And you swear that they'd never played before. Now, they just won the All-Ireland. This was their third in, in such a short space of time. And it was amazing. And, like, the Kerry lads weren't there. They were licking the wounds, and it can't be easy to come up. But they were there the following week. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's, but, like, uh, but, like, and it's, and the friendships that were built up, Kieran Donnie would often talk about himself and the McMahons and so on. Like, all these lads became almost inseparable. And why, the, why was I really honoured? I had an opportunity to go in 1968 when me they were going. And my dad at the time was 88 years of age. And uh, I didn't really want to leave my mother looking after him. And in case anything happened, because they were away for, at that time they were over three weeks going to be away. And my father called me and he said to me, have you... Uh, couple of national hurling league matches I said we have obviously I was thinking that's where you're not going. <laughs> <laughs> I, was going to miss, I was going to miss the chance of playing for me. And then people say you are mental, you understand? But I never had any problem and I had no mass to go to Australia. And um, you know ironically even when I'm sitting here at home, like across the fields, my great great grandmother's people were evicted off the farm the day after paying the rent in 98 and they were sent to Van Diemen's land. So like would you like to go there? In one way, yeah, but in another way, no mass. But when we went there, it was just, it was incredible from Perth to Melbourne down to Sydney. And um, the Subiaco's Clothes now, or a Sean Welsh from Cork, was Shubachio. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, both teams had come on so much from 2006. We met together, we had a dinner together, we socialised together, like the way it should be. And, for years and years and years, even in Crow Park after big matches or whatever, the teams never got together. And it's fierce important that they meet because like they've all, one is Victor, one is vanquished and, and so on. But it's fierce important that mixing together. And Mick Mortes was the, was the manager then for the, of the Aussies. Man is an absolute legend and uh, as a coach. But, you know, what I couldn't get over was in Perth at one o'clock in the morning. Tina, my wife, and Sean, Kieran, and Dara arrived out with her mother and father. And they were staying in a separate place from me. But at one o'clock in the morning, it was safe for the kids to walk down the street. And I said, would I let that happen at home? I'd be wary. I'd have to have somebody with them. And um, this was the same in Melbourne. It was the same in Sydney. Now, I know it happens everywhere, no matter where you go. But that thing of feeling safe, but what it meant to the people, I remember... We got to Sydney, meeting the, uh, the Sadie Summers, 
And Sadie was the first of a family of 17 to go away and she went to Australia. And her, her husband afterwards was, was a doctor with an, was, was an Australian team. But like, I hadn't seen her from the time she was a young girl in the 60s, from the time she left the parish. And Sean Battersby was in school, he sat beside me in school. And all those links that were there and what it meant. And I remember after the two internationals, one in Perth and one in Melbourne, when we were to win the series by two points. And we're heading down for, for Sydney to play a New South Wales selection. And the other way, sometimes that you can be stupid. And I'm on the bus. Yeah. And I said, something wrong here now. There's something wrong. What am I not thinking of? And then I called Sean Welch. He was the, he was the tour manager, Sean from Cork. He, was, he had been Cork. Sorry, he was the tour manager. He'd been the Kerry chairman. I said, Sean, will you do me a favour? He said, what? Will you go into the, to the, the New South Wales dressing room? The Aussie dressing room? I said, what do you want me to do? I said, will you tell the lads now, hang on. We've had the series, and the lads have given their all to it. And I said, no one Irishman, they'd be queuing up to have a go and bring these, bring these other Irish lads down to tell them we're, we're far better than you, so on, right? And I always remember the first ball that David, David Gallagher went to nearly got his leg broken. Suddenly they realised, hang on, it might be only a friendly, but like they were representing Australia, and they were Irish and they were proud to do it, and they wanted it to be competitive. And it woke us up to the honour that it is to play represent, represent the country or the place where you live or whatever. It was a huge thing. But was it one of the highlights of my career? I would have to say, yes, it was. Um, <clears throat> it was extraordinary um, because the following year in 2009, um, um, Ireland were, to, were, were, to, um, were playing again. And uh, uh, Christy Cooney had said to me, would you like to do the rules for a second time? And I said, I'd be absolutely honoured. I couldn't believe it. And um, a few weeks later, I got a tumour. And um, I rang Christy and he said, look, we'll hold for you. He said, no. I said, I know I won't, but I'll be all right. And he said, well, who would you go for? But I said, I think the continuity is important. And who would you go with? I said, well, I go with Anthony or go with the bomber. That's what I said, right? And that's how Anthony Toll came in as manager. And it was fantastic and it was brilliant. Now, <clears throat> for me, when it came to the end of November, December, because of medication I had to take for six months, it was a hormone suppressant and your muscles wasted. My right knee dislocated, my left knee dislocated. Um, I was like a duck. And, uh, oh, oh, and yet in December, I was able to have the procedure done. And I'm still here looking at you and talking to you and so on. But again, I remember, my son has been interviewed and, and, and my wife with Miriam O'Callaghan and because he's involved in music and the fact that his father was what he was. And um, Miriam just happened to say to Tina, how was Sean? And he's great, he made a great recovery. He said, what happened? And she told him about having had a tumour. I wonder would he speak about it? He said, well, he's out in the car, out in the car park. So I came in and said, I want to talk to you about Sean, you had cancer. I said, Miriam, forget about the cancer. There's no problem with the cancer. But the medication I had to take I said, my male, you're taking a hormone, and the testosterone, male, the male hormone suppressed. So like Christmas night, minus seven in 2009, snow on the ground, frost everywhere. And there I am with short sleeve, I'm menopausal as three minutes of Jesus Christ. Suddenly for the like, if you said boo to me, I'd either try or bite you. It was like, <laughs> so different, like it was just, but it was an extraordinary experience. 
yeah, I must have had a hundred medics rang me afterwards. They never realized about those side effects. And so that's, you know, now never once did I fear it wasn't going to be right. The, the night that the procedure was done on me, um, Jerry Mack in the matter came in to see me and uh, the young fellow called Mick Lyons was with him. Now I'm not going <laughs> out, of the, out of the anesthetic and the crack was good and so on. But when the lads were gone, the nurse came in to me and she said, is, uh, is Mr. Lyons a consultant? Oh, I said, he is. I said, yeah. I said, Jerry, and Jerry, the you know, liver transplant man at the time, Jerry said, uh, well, he probably taught me all I know, you see. <laughs> oh, she said, are you that? Mick Lyons, all right. He's a fair surgeon, all right. <laughs> but again, you know, it's that thing how, you know, the sport and everything, it just, it just pulls you through and it gives you resilience and, you, you know, how formidable we are. And you, when you stop and think of some of the lads who are at the height of their career playing and something happens, you know, and your career is gone and you can't do it. That's devastating, but generally helps you to cope in a way. Like there was a great problem about a Limerick hurler, you know, um, just a few weeks ago on TG Carr. What a problem. And like, talk about an inspiration, somebody with multiple sclerosis. Mm. And like, what an inspiration. And like, if we learn that from sport, uh, apart from the winning, we learn how to survive, how to create still that you, you know that you can still do lots of other things or do it in a different way. Then you're, it's mighty and it's great. Long may it rain. Absolutely, Sean. Given the question, sorry, you asked me for that question. But it's not at all. Not at all. Sorry, Ross. Oh, geez, sorry, Mick. Okay, all okay. right, all right. Sean, given the, the year that's in it, obviously 1920 uh, is fresh in a lot of people's minds and. Yes. Your father obviously would have been um, very, very much involved around that time. Were you yes. aware growing up how involved he was? Not for a long time. And um, uh, until um, a few letters came in one time to address General Sean Boyle. We never used General. We never knew that. And uh, he never talked about it. The only time if in the late 50s, pensions were introduced for people who had been involved in what they called the movement. And you had to go to a commanding officer or a fellow officer to get a recommendation for a pension or whatever it was. So because it's a herbal clinic here at home as well, and uh, people were coming looking for bottles at the time. And uh, so Sean O'Shea Khan from the farm of Arsure Hall was a great Shanaki as well, a great storyteller. He told a story about, you know, he was going back down to West Cork and he's in Crow Park. And of course, typically at the time he had a car. So he'd be able, the, the car would be full of stuff, bring back down to people at home because there was no UPS and there was no one post, posting service or anything else. So he arrives out to my house or at our house and he knocks on the front door and Francis and Philip were twins and they answered the front door and they said, are you looking for a bottle or are you looking for a pension? And he said, I'll take both, I'll take both right? Okay. But, uh, yeah, no, it was extraordinary. It's ironic that you should say that, yeah. 100 years ago, Dad got me going to, he was chairman of the county in 1920. And he was on the Central Council because if you were chairman then, that's what you were as well. And he was on the Army Council. And um, there were extraordinary times. And um, uh, there were extraordinary men, like he was a Mosler walking out Franca. And uh, how times change. Young Sean is going for an audition in, um, in Wandsworth. It became a music school. And um, when the audition was over, they just said to him, where any of your people ever here before? And he said, in London. No, no, the seven ones. Oh, yeah, I said my grandfather was in jail here. And um, but like, and that's how, like, and yes, when Charles and Camilla were up in, sort of in, in Kinsborough Castle, he was asked to perform. Now, 
happened me back. It happened back me in, in, in the late seventies. I was on a World Health, Health Organization body, and there was a Queen's Garden party, and I was asked to say a few words. Yeah, to, to where it's they call it Chelsea Physic Gardens, right? And um, oh, you know, myself, I'm not going near there. Don't go, don't do that. Oh no, you've earned the right. And I suppose that's what happened at that time. It was to earn the right to look after ourselves, to mind ourselves, to control ourselves, to lead our own life the way we felt it should be led. And um, extraordinary people, uh, you know, would do anything to bring us one step nearer to freedom. And that's what, that's what happened. And um, there were terrible sad times as well. I thought the, the association excelled themselves with the way they honored them in Crow Park. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, it couldn't have been more dignified and uh, but even going back when the Queen was here the way it was handled in Crow Park as well, it was it set the standard and um, you know, I remember several times years ago going across the border, we'd been stopped and um, so we stopped at the B Specials and I remember some of the lads <clears throat> there was a man called Sean Hollywood he was an SDLP member and Sean was playing hurling for down and yet he was in the SDLP and he'd leave home and say the match was in Ballycran or something across Port of Ferry, across the, across the ferry, across the peninsula. And he'd be stopped and his car would be searched and they take the panels off it. And of course, nobody could get near him and they'd just leave him then. And he'd, he'd try and get the car put back together and he'd probably arrive when the match was just over. And that was fierce harassment. And I remember going up to Cross with Len one day and Peter Hines worshipped me. Peter coming up with me and Peter didn't realise the crack that was going on across with Glenn that half the pitch was taken over by the British Army, you see? And I said nothing. I went back in the car and afterwards after this, geez, he went to some place. Look at the lights they have. I'm sure they were, they were the Brits looking in, right? <laughs> and they uh, have a helicopter pad as well. I said, Peter, you have no idea. So well, what they have up, up the north, I said. And, uh, but it, it was just incredible. And I remember the first time after the Ireland in 97, or 96, playing up in Oma. And the dressing rooms at the time, like there were even lockers for the players, like you wouldn't see it. And um, speaking to some of the lads from up from the mall, and they saying, I said, I said, is that the Queen's money? It's our money. She robbed it. It's our money. <laughs> but again, how you how how things have come round. Mm. And I remember my first big adventure up there would have been, apart from playing at all, would be a friend of mine was editor of the political magazine in Cambridge. And um, he had Jack Lynch and his teacher here, and Terence O'Neill was a Premier of Northern Ireland. He had him uh, over in Cambridge on the one stage, uh, dressed in the political group in 1968 after the Buntalloch riots. And he rang me looking for an unbiased article. And I said, Tony, there's no such thing. The guy's name was Tony Wilson. He became better known, I suppose, afterwards in the music world with New Order and Joy Division and uh, you know, Mad Manchester and so on. But Tony was like my brother. He was like my mom and dad were his mom and dad and, and so on. And um, but he had an incredible interest in Irish history. And we went to Paddy Quinn's house in Armagh this night looking for this unbiased article on the 27th of December 1968. And um, there were Irish, Sinn Fein, civil rights, people's democracy, Welsh national. There were eight different shades of green. And there was no split in Irish, there was no split in Sinn Fein. And ironically, I was coming from World Health Organization meeting in Rome. And the, in, at the end of 82, end of 82, and um, the time the bombings went off in Harrods, and I could only get a flight to Luton and then go up to Manchester to get a flight home to be back in time for training. And um, Tony picked me up, 
And he picked me up at the time, the bombings went off in Harrods. And we talked the whole way up to Blossom in the Pennines about that night in Armagh. And when there were eight different shades of green, uh, eight different ways that things people, that people felt that they should have done, like Neil Vallely, you know, Paddy Devlin, all those people, they were all at this. And it was an extraordinary night, but the music was great, the crack was great. But when it came to talking about um, the pending war or the trying to prevent a war, they were so driven in what they wanted to do. And yet, on the other side, you had so many people indoctrinated from the time they were infantile that this was also rules and, and so on, but it was it was in a different way. And for to get those cultures to come together, so the likes of what, so the likes of John Hume and all of these people, Jerry McGuinness or Martin McGuinness and so on did, it was extraordinary, like how they came around and you never got Peter Robinson. Like I was in, in Queens, the GR being honored for their role in peacekeeping. And Mrs. Villiers is there, you know, and, and Peter Robinson is there and Martin McGuinness is there. And all the different people are being interviewed. Johnny Cooper has been interviewed. You know, David Serena has been interviewed. Um, Parik Duffy has been interviewed. But then you had Mickey Hart. Then you had Maeve Kyle and Neil McCrossan. Then you had so many people, John McBride, all different sports, all there, talking about the role of the GA that it had in the peacekeeping that people wouldn't like to talk about, but it was there. And I was asked, um, what did I, <clears throat> how do I feel about it? And I talked about, my first match um, against Antrim was in 1961, the end of the year. And I was 17 and we're in Belfast and we're going up to Loch Eel and we stopped to get tea and sandwiches. And um, uh, we're great and we're all pioneers at the time and everybody wore a suit and we all had the pioneer badge in. The next minute we hear a racket and a band and a, there's an orange man's parade. And I'm standing beside Peter Robinson, I'm telling the story. And so we look up and see the black sashes, or the, the sashes and the black suits, the bowler hats, and the boys beating the hell out of the drums. And we're trying to get the pioneer pins out of our lapel because the Protestants are going to kill us. And we're the good guys. And that realization that just 100 miles down the road, we had no idea what was going on. And we had no idea that in the six counties of Northern Ireland on a Sunday, you couldn't get a drink. In the 26 counties where we were all Catholics and we were all saints, right? <laughs> you couldn't get enough people into a pub on Sunday, right? <laughs> and there was a, that contrast was there. And that's what I've been lucky enough to live through. And the same with dad, every Easter Saturday and Christmas Eve, used to be a visit to Gloucester Street Convent and Sister Ethna Lawless was there. And you could have Sean McKeown or Sean McEntee, one diehard Fianna Fáil, one diehard Fianna Gael. You could have you know, Dick Mulcahy or Jim Ryan, his brother-in-law, and all from all sides and everybody on those two days who were involved at a certain level called and paid their respects to Sister Ethna Lawless. And in all the things written about Michael Collins, no one ever talks about her. She was Michael Collins' secretary and she crossed the divide. And the ironic thing, <clears throat> Robert Keyes did a history of art in 1966, his principal researcher was a man called John Rendell from Nottingham University. Second man was uh, um, Garolda Sullivan, and he was a Vincentian priest, and his father, both Nottingham University, and he, his father was the first attorney general. So here you have Liam Lynch's man and, and Michael Collins' man, and they're both history teachers in Nottingham University, and they're directing this man, Robert Keyes, and it was an amazing programme. 
And why I say that was because um, John ran a call to our house. My dad was still alive. He had Parkinson's at the time to talk about the period 1915, 1923. And he's after leaving Mr. De Valera in the park and he would talk about anything by that period. And the reason he wouldn't talk about it was simple because they were all members of the IRB, Republican Brotherhood. And even through the Civil War, they never brought that allegiance to each other. And that was the most, it was live and let live. And if we take nothing else, and if our sport, like, you know, <clears throat> if the sport has done anything to us, it has taught us how when things don't work out, we don't win, you still put the hand out, you still shake hands, and you get up and fight another day. And that's a delayed a long time. Yeah, look, that's, that's a great philosophy to live by. Um, Sean, I want to take you back suppose, to the football side of things. You coach or you, your management for four All-Ireland football winning teams. Tell us this, though. What kept you going in between those? I'm not going to say barren years. It was only between. It was only eight years between when you, the two ones that you won. But what was there something there? Did you see underage development or did you see players coming through? The Garrities, the Giles. Did you, did you know that there was something big coming for the second time, if you like? Um. <clears throat> Never look further than the year ahead. Um, um, every year you went out, it was a different year. And you had to do something different. But you knew what you were aiming to do in the first place. Like when I went in first with the lads, I couldn't believe um, that how good they could be for five or six minutes. But they couldn't sustain it for any longer. So there was a certain level of fitness that as a group we didn't really understand. And that understanding of a lot of the stresses and tensions of the match. That's where half the training went through, was to help you to cope with all of that. And then a method of playing and so on. And like when I went in first, every free was off the line, off the ground. Every sideline ball was off the ground. So there was a lot more physical contact. And then afterwards it changed when all you know, the, the, play, the ball out of the hand for sideline balls and freezes and so on. And that was a big change as well. But when <clears throat> year by year, it was extraordinary because um, I remember after 1995, that's the best way to start, best place. We're beating 10 points for Dublin in the Leinster final. People wouldn't believe, but 12 minutes to go, we were two points ahead. And we're beating 10. Two weeks earlier, we'd played Tyrone and we played Donegal in challenge matches, one in Donegal and one in Tyrone. And we're absolutely annihilated. And coming home and realizing then, We've lost the edge. Still playing good football, but we've lost that, that edge. And um, um, Mick Lyons and Joe Cassis were the two selectors then. They drove home on their own. They never spoke. And I never spoke with Dennis Butter, who was with me. And yet you tried to get it as right as you could. And um, it might have changed if some things came up, but they didn't. So when the match was over, um, some of the lads came down to the county club in the chocolate where we were having a bite to eat, some of the older players, and said, look, you've had a great time. Um, you're held in very high regard, which is a lovely thing to be able to say, but um, maybe it's time to go. And I said, look, I think you're absolutely right, but I have a problem. And they said to me, what's your problem? I said, listen, will you go and talk to the players and then come back to me? And two of the boys came back to me, including Jerry, saying to me an hour and a half later, you know, you can't go. I said, why? The young lads think they'll win all with you. And that's what made the change. And as God is my judge, Darren Faye, Paddy Reth, they had all come in just at the end of that 
sort of 95. They came in just for that, that. So there were some of them were subs in 95. And six of the lads who were part of the team that were beating the All-Ireland final in 1993 minor, apart from sort of Graham's and Trevor's and so on, they were on the 92 and 90, 90 teams and so on. But there were six players came off the team that were beaten in the All-Ireland final. And they were very young, the, the six of them, far minor. They had another year to go. But that day, I remember Crow Park saying there was something about these lads that they still kept trying to do the right thing. They never thought that they couldn't win. So when I was asked to go again, it was right before the county board, naturally enough, and I was given another chance at the college. And Shane McAtee, God be good to him, was opposed me. And Shane was great. And um, uh, the funny thing, we got together, and in January of 1996, we're training in Gormistown, the college. Jerry, um, uh, Colin Coyle said to Martin O'Connell, if we don't book up, these young fellas are going to push us off the team. They were driving it, the Darren phase and so on, this world. And that's, you know, I remember saying that, that night in January, you know, 96, you know, we could surprise everybody this year. And that's, that's what happened. And um, that was the start of a new era. So what you say is really true. At the early days, sort of from the end of 82 until sort of 1987, yes, you'd won a Leicester for the first time in 16 years. Yes, you've gone up into Division Two. Yes, you've retained your status, um, and yes, and you've won a centenary cup. Now, um, but after '85, naturally the guns were out, and um, the players then at the time said, "Listen, we'd like to give them a chance." And after that famous meeting in the house, they went on and they won. And then you had '86, '87, '88. You know. Beating 89 Leinster, won it in 1991, the Leinster, you know, um, we're beating the All Ireland in 90, beating in 91, 91 as well. But um, there was the miners had won in 90, 92, they won again. So there were lads coming through. And <clears throat> the lads who were there, who in the early part, you know, when they suddenly found success, you know, after so long in, in the wilderness, they didn't want to give up. People believe Colin was. 38 we played his last championship match, Colin O'Rourke, and he's only scored four points. You know what I mean? Like people believe, and it was <clears throat> it was he who retired, but Bobby Maddy was the same, Brian Stafford was the same, PJ Gillick, um, you know, Liam Harn, like these were these Bernie Flynn, they were they they stepped down themselves. And I all remember Mick O'Dwyer you know, talking about the famous team that he had. Like they'd won eight dollars. She said, "Geez, Sean, I couldn't let them go." You know what I mean? <laughs> and like I couldn't. Do you know what I mean? Like, hang on. Yeah. Like I know, it's, and 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 I would have been the same. But there were other lads who had come in, and the beautiful thing <clears throat> I think that you learn from success is that you have always a chance. And if what they came into was they came into a system that overall knew how to survive. Lots of times we should have been beaten. You know. And, and we survived. But I would say a lot of that was like even involved those seven All-Irelands and two replays. We would never have done a sprint for 10 weeks beforehand. Everything was ball work. Everything was ball work. And I think that was the big thing. And um, that core belief in yourself. So like, how do people stick with it? <clears throat> like after 92, we're beating the first round by Leash down in, down in Navan. Uh, Huey Emerson, Lord Jesus, Damien Delaney, we just stopped. 
Um, it was a lesson to be old, right? And yet we come outside and you expect the supporters to be jeering at you and so on. And I remember big Noel Shanky putting his arm around me and said, Shawnee, we can go on holidays this year. We haven't had a holiday for years. <laughs> because we were playing every Sunday, or seemed to be, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, 93 was barren enough, but we so, you know, got the Leicester semi-final. Then 94 beat the semi-final of the Leicester. 95 hammered. But in between, you know, um, won the league in 90, won the league in 94. There were things that kept you going that people wouldn't be thinking about. So I think, um, I don't know why people stayed with me, um, but um, sometimes the people can know more than you do yourself. You want to go and it's time to go. But it was the start like of different eras. And I remember my last meeting with the county board <clears throat> saying, look, um, it'll take two years. And if I was to be there, I'd need somebody with me for two years and I'd step down after a year. But our rule was every year we change the manager. Had any difficulty with that? But you had Joe Sheridan, Brian Farrell, Stephen Stephen Bray, you had Graham Garrett, you had Nigel Crawford, Anthony Miles. You had the two like, like there was a hell of a team there. You know what I mean? I see that I felt it would win all Ireland in two years, but that's the way it goes, and um, and it didn't work out. Um, did I probably stay too long? I probably did, but it was stay. It was for the right reason. You didn't want it to slip back to where it was before you come on. So there's nobody, nobody um, that can't be done without. Come here, Sean. There's something interesting you've, you said there uh, between '95 and '96. They had lost the edge. How did how did you get that back, or how do you go about getting the edge back? Um, <clears throat> I'll be cheeky now. In that '97, <clears throat> we were beaten in by Offaly. We were beaten in, in the Leinster final. '98, we were beaten by Kildare. Now '97, Kildare and says had three brilliant matches, right? And um, I sort of took everything out. We had nothing left, okay? And um, we, we, we were playing awfully. And awfully we were on the roll with Tommy Lyons. And look, I know we're without Mark, Mark O'Reilly and Graham and Darren Fay and Marty O'Connell. That doesn't matter. So a collective, whoever was playing was playing. And they bet us. <clears throat> but in 1999, it's in the first week in May, and we're coming from training, and Graham was the captain. And I called Graham and said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, look, see the way we're playing? He said, you seem to be, seem to be going well, right? I said, Graham, can I tell you something? I said, the way we're playing, I said, we'll win nothing. We won't even win the first round of Leinster. I said, we're, we're going through, we're mentally fatigued. And he said, what are you going to do about it? I said, I think I want them every day for a fortnight. Right, he said, okay, I'll tell it <laughs> on. So I um, hadn't told the selectors. So every day, for 11, out, of the, out, out of the 14 days, I had them 11 times. And the reason was they, they knew how to do it. The fitness was there, but the mental fatigue was there. And they broke that themselves. From then on, you knew in 99, nobody was going to beat us. And that's how you do it. You can walk away from it, sometimes a little break, but then get back into it again because we're animals of habit. <clears throat> and speaking of little breaks... What inspired the trip over to Glasgow in 91 before the final Dubs game? Um, um, in fairness to the county board, after the first match against Dublin, after the second one, after the third one, they said to me, the county board chairman, secretary, Vinta Gilgey and Liam, Liam Craven, God bless them, do you want to take the lads away someplace? And I said the first couple of times, no, no, don't, no, don't, no, don't. And um, 
um, after the third match, um, I went to the chairman secretary. I might take the lads away for a few days, whatever you want to do. So then I went round, and uh, good for the lads were married, and uh, a lot of them were in relationships and so on. And I went round to the girls that were there, and I said, "Would you mind if I took the lads away for a couple of days?" Oh, Jesus, Shawnee, and to beat the dubs, you see, <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, saying, Shawnee, you're you're right. And, yeah, look, this is the real world now, right? <laughs> so uh, anyhow, uh, uh, and he arranged with uh, Noel Keating, God be good, from Keepak. And Jinxie was an auxiliary, David Bay, uh, administrator in, um, uh, in um, uh, with a conglomerate of nursing homes in, in Scotland. So he could be in Glasgow for three weeks, or Ayr, or Perth, you know what I mean, or Dundee, or whatever it was. And uh, Gavin Hastings was, and was one of the people involved with that. And David played rugby with Curry as well, you see. So, um, Arranged to meet David in Glasgow the next morning. And Noel Keating got me good to him, Boston Keepak, was at a very important meeting with Michael O'Kennedy, the Minister for Agriculture. And the arrangements were made that this phone call would come, a very urgent meeting that he had to be taken away from the meeting with the Minister, right? <laughs> so the important things of life. So the phone call goes through and Michael O'Kennedy says, no, you have to go. There's a very important meeting for you, right? Thanks very much. And he comes to the airport. And we go to Glasgow and Jigsy picks us up in a clapped out escort, right? And all of a sudden, America was about 100 grand at the time, right? Anyhow, um, we head up towards Loch Lomond and um, stopped at a place called Drimmon, where Billy Connolly is from. And uh, we're in the Buchanan Arms. And there was tea and scones and cream and raspberry jam. And it was just lovely. I said, <laughs> This is where this is where we're coming, right? And um, now this is this is the height of the planning that goes into it. And Noel and Jason were delighted and so on. So um, went back, talked to lads. So on the there was no direct flight to Glasgow except two days a week. So there was none. There was none on a on a on a on a, on a Friday. There was one on a Friday, but I wanted to go out on the Thursday. So um, we went out. We went there. And arranged with pitches there, with soccer pitches there, they would do some work there. But the very first thing that happened was we had never told um, the girls, but Noel got me good to Noel Keating said, if you want to bring them, we can bring them. Now remember, you know, with all the matches we had played, they hardly see, had seen their wives or anything else. And all the girls were brought with us as well on the trip. They had no idea. And it's a five star hotel. And there was a great banquet that night and we had a great laugh and we had a great crack. And the ones that were smart enough knew, be careful, there's, there's gonna be a payback tomorrow, right? <laughs> careful, they left it all in the feed the next morning, whatever it was. And um, we went out for a run the next day. That's all we did. And then some of them went fishing, some of them went up onto Loch Lomond, some of them went uh, clay pigeon shooting. We just totally unwound and totally relaxed. And, um, on um, the first night, we end up playing charades, right? Then the next night, we had a video. Just a few clips, because there wasn't a thing we didn't know about Dublin, we thought. And we thought there wasn't a thing that they could know about us either. And we just um, had a chat about it. And the next morning, the Sunday morning, for 40 minutes, 
A movement like happened at the end of the match when Kevin Foley scored the goal. A non-stop movement for 40 minutes up and down the field is what we did. And then come the match the following week, Liam Hayes is captain and um, Dublin get a penalty and I called Liam. I said, Liam, even if they do score, we still beat them. Just tell the lads, start throwing the ball around like they did last Sunday. And the dugout at the time was on the Cusick side and I'd gone around to the Hogan side at this stage because I wanted to get my message across. And the whole place went silent. <laughs> and out of the stand comes, go away, you're bleeding witch doctor. They went, right? But anyhow, McLean's missed the penalty, anyhow, so um, ran up there with Keith Barr, right? And, um, you know, we survived. But, like, the extraordinary thing was the actual movement and the irony of so many things with it. Um, the ball that sort of Mark Munn, the corner, McLean's, and the whole way up the field and Kevin Foley played the ball twice and Kevin put the ball in the back of the net. And I always remember Paddy Hickey in the dressing room after was asking Kevin, you know, about 10 different ways about the score he got. And Kevin, you know, Kevin's vet, very simple, a very, you know, straightforward man, used to making decisions, uh, very uncomplicated, not into fuss or bother anything else. And he asked him about five or six different ways about the score. And he said, Paddy, I don't think you're listening to me. I told you, I've never scored before. I never scored from the club. I never scored from me. And I've told you that now five times. And you do me a favor. You're standing on my fucking tower and want to have a shower, right? <laughs> That's absolute truth. You know, but like, should Dublin beat this probably good? You know, and, and that's the way. But it was that that indefinable thing. You know what to say about playing with the ball? Like, that's, that's, it was endless. You know what I mean? And like, um, oh, it's, you can't, you cannot beat, um, you can't beat, you can't get that ball off enough. You can't have it off enough. Yet we would have done an awful lot of really strenuous training, but that was at the right time. You know, we had to do that. But like, um, that was an extraordinary trip. And um, the relief at having beaten Dublin. And yet, you know, here was four matches, extra time you know, in the matches and so on. And um, Tommy Howard became a legend. The referee was brilliant. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was. He, like, he knew everything. I should know, could call him. He knew what they were going to do. You know what I mean? And uh, that was like, nowadays, the referee can't do a replay. You know what I mean? And um, I think there's a lot to be said for it, like in, in, in that trust thing. You know what I mean? Because, like, if fella had transgressed the previous week, he wasn't holding it against him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Every day he just took it as it was. It was a huge, it became a huge thing. It was a brilliant thing for Tommy. And uh, the colour man. Now, um, after that, we that was to enable either double ourselves to play Wicklow in the first round of the Leicester Championship proper, which was a preliminary route. And only Hugh Kenny was sent off, Wicklow would have beaten us. And we won the replay. And Liam Hayes got sent off. And Jerry McAdee had come back. Jerry had been working in the Mayo Clinic. He had retired the previous year. And he was at the first two matches. And um, he was like the eye of the sky for himself and Joe Castles. And I remember the first day, I said, I want to see it halftime for 30 seconds. Because the way the old pitch was, if you're on the Hogan stand, looking down the left-hand side towards the Nally stand, there was a dip there. So where the dugout was, you wouldn't just see exactly what was going on properly. Do you understand? So Jerry and I said, come down half time, 30 seconds, tell me what you see. 
He comes down, he pushes me out of the way, and Pat Renz, Tony Brennan goes up the corner where Colin Morocco and Bernie Finn are. He said, Why won't you give the ball to Sean Kelly? Do you understand? That's how passionate he was. And the replay, then the next match he was there, and the third match, he's back in with us. And then, you know, he ends up getting an all star afterwards. It's an amazing, amazing sequence of events. You know what I mean? And like the previous year, Jerry playing Nuller and finally gets a really bad, you know, abductor strain. And it's to get the plane and go back and be in work in the Mayo Clinic the next day. Like it was on a flight out of that, you know, out of London at seven o'clock in the evening, the All Ireland. And eight hours, that's, you know, with, a, with, a, with an abductor strain and knowing you're beaten, you know what I mean, in the All Ireland and have to go to work the next day. But they're the things, the character that the fellas develop, you know, and that's what they go through because they want to play. And that's the beautiful thing. That's what we learned from. Sorry, not so forgotten on that. It's, um, it goes against every bit of sports science. A week out from playing the dubs after four times to bring the lads away for a weekend on the absolute piss. How in hell did you keep control of them for that long? <laughs> um, the strange thing, I, I made my confirmation when I was 10 and I took the pledge and I haven't drank since, right? And um, I never once had to say to a player not to drink. And the reason was they learned very quickly themselves that if you got dehydrated and you started pulling things, you had to learn yourself, what am I doing that's causing me this? And that means if I have to take a stay away from alcohol or whatever it was, then that's what they had to do. So there's no credits for it. If you wanted to play the game, that's what you had to do. And they made those decisions themselves and they were brilliant men to do it, but that's what they did. I remember going to the, the Grand Hotel in Malahide on the, Friday before the All-Ireland in 87. And Mick Lyons was with me, just showing what I was going to do on a Sunday morning. And um, we were at the hotel. And I said, Mick, do you want a pint? And he looked at me. <laughs> he had a pint for months, you see. And like, um, you know, we had a cup of coffee, right? But the reason I'm saying that, because you knew the night of the All-Ireland, win or, win or lose, the lads were never going to be able to drink much because they weren't able for it. Do you follow me? And so that was the responsibility. But now, was it a huge risk? In a way, it was. But... It was, people were consumed with it. Like, you know, the way you can get lost in the city, but in the country, everybody you meet, because they stop, they're telling you how to play and what to do and so on. And like, um, so was it a calculated risk? I never for a moment felt that um, they would abuse it. Do you understand? And they didn't. And um, um, I call it an educated guest for the group of players that I had at the time, which was the right thing to do. There are other lads, you couldn't let them near something like that, you know? <laughs> like I remember we went on holidays one time with the team and we were in South Africa. There was one place I told them not to go. There's, uh, there's, yeah, you get these hammerhead sharks in the water. Where was the first place they headed for? <laughs> Lovely and warm, the Indian Ocean. Like, will you get out there? <laughs> you know I mean? and, like, and that's, you know, it's, it's funny. We, it's, it's in our nature we're told not to do something. But that thing to take responsibility, that was huge. Absolutely huge. It must have been difficult, though, because it, it tends to be a big part of uh, bonding, when, particularly when I'm thinking of the international rules. And yeah. Donahue and a few others have spoken about it in the past, where yeah. it, was, it was going out and socialising and having those few drinks that really brought, yeah. brought any panel or team together. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, my, my third uh, National League match with, with me team, and I'm in the Beachfront Hotel, and um, the first two matches afterwards, let's go for a couple of drinks. And... Um, uh, you see, there was a certain level of 
fitness that was there in lads from lads who've been on the championship panels, right? So there were a few league matches before Christmas. So they're all in fairly good condition. So you go, I go into into um oh the pub with the lads after a bite to eat. And some of the lads would ask me about doing something or something they'd like to see done. And a few days later, I talked to them about it. And being a quick learner in the third match, I said, they have an idea of what they've asked me to do. It was then I realised that there's an affinity between lads who have a drink and ones that don't. And that affinity is so you can get things off your chest and then you get up and get on with it. Now, if the said you call sober, you might beat the heads off each other or whatever it was, do you understand? But that's, you know, and, and then one of the boys probably finished, he said to me, how'd you learn, how'd you learn, he said, Shani, um, to walk away. I said, Party, when I saw you with a hand around the glass, and you sent to me, now, Sean, I maintain. Shortly afterwards, I went to the Jacks and went home, right? When <laughs> you started that, I maintain. So it's time for me, you were on the show then, not me. And you wrote that. <laughs> that was it, yeah, yeah. No, no. We had a lot of luck, lads. An awful lot of luck, thanks be God. But I had great people with me, um, great selectors. But there were great, there were great men, and, like, the responsibility that lads would have taken, you know, it's... It, it, um, the responsibility was that this is not a chore. People talk about the sacrifices you make to play. If it's that big a sacrifice, don't do it. Do it because you want to do it, Mick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sean, you're obviously involved in loads of memorable games over the year, but what, what tops the list for yourself, if it's possible to top just one game? Um, I suppose winning the Leinster was huge in 86, winning the All-Ireland. Like... In, the, in their own right, they're all extraordinary matches, you know what I mean? And extraordinary days. And um, um, it's like, I never came back from a training session that we didn't have a laugh. That was fierce important. So it never it never became a chore. But winning the All-Ireland in, in 96 um, was an extraordinary, it was an extraordinary thing for me as a person because Ross asked, posed the question to me earlier about, um, you know, the nights being out or how long you were there. And so after 95, and they'd won it in 96, but people like the county board and Key Park and all those people, they all stood by us, right? Mm. Now, you know, when we got back to Cluny, having won that all earned, I got into as far as Key Park, and my friend Noel was no longer around, Noel was in heaven, right? His sons were there and so on. And um, there was 10,000 people there. And I met Lee McGreen and John Horgan and the family. And I just said, Let's be, let me out of here for a minute. And I just broke down crying. Mm. It was that pent up emotion because three weeks before Noel Keating died, he and I went for a medical and we couldn't have had a better medical and we couldn't have had better results. And yet three weeks later, he was dead. And uh, he was 53, and, um, and I was 51. And um, because of what happened, you know, in 93, in 94, 95, even though we won the league in 94, um, 95, kick pack could easily said, Sean, away you go. But right through until I finished, they never, they never pulled out. They were just, they were in for the long haul for what was right for the county. And their firm at the time, um, they were all exports, so they were really getting no value out of it. And after 96, and God blesses the service, the famous row, 27 seconds of madness, right? Um, Keypack 
you know, were involved in, in an international food fair in Paris. And they had a small little stand there, right? And they, wherever they got the biggest televisions that they could get all around the place. And they kept showing the round. Irish <laughs> beef, Irish beef, I'm right. <laughs> and the biggest crowds at any stand at the food fair was the Irish one because it showed the, the round. Which, uh, look, it, it was just the great things and the mad things and so on. And like, you know, should Mayo beat us twice? Yeah, probably should. But that's life. Uh, that's life. And then, um, oh, you know, it's it's um, a very funny one happened. Um, Colin McMenamin and his wife, family, they've been friends of mine. And uh, Colin's a great player for Mayo. And Caroline Ryan, my son, Kieran, who plays for Ackle one day. Do you think what your father would think to run the Strictly night? He, they, he, they're from Barishroo, Bar Bar right? I said, Newport. And um, uh, we're thinking of running a Strictly. Do you think would your dad um, come and, you know, as an adjudicator? So Kieran said, I'll come back to you when I get to Ackle. I'll come back to you. So Kieran came back onto Caroline. He said, Caroline, I'm going to read the outfit. I know him. If he can draw, I know he'll do it for you. But if he does, because being who he is, my son, getting fair bit of stick in all the matches he was playing, right? And he would be the most polite himself on the, on the field to play, right? <laughs> and uh, anyhow, he said, and by the way, he said, if he does decide to do it, will you tell the lads anything they forgot to say to me about him should they can tell him on the night? They made 45,000 pounds, right? Okay, yeah. But again, that's, that's the sport thing, you know, and that's it, you know, that rivalry and that friendship at the same time. Absolutely. And come here, Sean, you, no. you, spoke, you spoke about it there. What was your view of that 20 second seconds of madness? Were you close to it? Was, uh, with, you know, I was in, as, as in the dugout. Um, people say it was arranged, wasn't arranged, just happened. Pent up emotions, pent up emotions. That's what it was. And um, should it happen? No, it shouldn't happen, but it did happen. And um, uh, like it became an extraordinary game of football afterwards, you know. and the funny thing was, down the mail, Coiler, you know, was the baddie because Lee McKay was sent off. Mm. And Lee McKay was the great player and Colin Coyle was no use. Colin Coyle was one of two <laughs> main members, three all Ireland medals. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that, you know, and, and, and like, um, and that's, um, oh, apparently Pat McEnany was going to put off John McDermott and one of his umpires said to oh, Jason Coyle has to go. He decked at least seven people. That's what he said. You're right. <laughs> and, but, Again, was it nice having eight players suspended? Yeah, maybe Ferrari didn't start, right? And um, uh, and they had six suspended. And um, it that was tough because you, you're nearly made feel like you shouldn't have, have won the All-Ireland. And um, that's tough because, like, even the Minister for Sport was on, just as the sport was on the next day, saying about violence in sport. It was 27 seconds of madness. Yeah. That's what it was. And truthfully, nobody was hurt, but that's neither here nor there. It shouldn't have happened, and it did. And, um, you know, it settled down and became a great match afterwards. But I remember the Thursday afterwards, and I'm going to finish with this, lads. Um, my wife, Tina, said, I said to her, listen, I'd love to go somewhere. We go for a bite to eat and a walk. Sean, there's not a county in Ireland you're welcome. Not a country, right? And I said, no, I said, no, it'd be okay. So where are you going to go? I said, we go to Dublin. What? Yeah, I said, you can get lost in the city. Oh, you're mad. No, I said, listen, we go to Holt and we'll have a walk and so on, get a bite to eat. And I pulled in at the harbour in Holt and Tina's with me. 
and a car pulls in alongside and there's a famous double hurling of football. Two of them were Des and Lar Foley, with Lar and the wife. And Lar played hurling of football for Dublin, when all Ireland's with them and so on. Great player, great character. And he got out of the car the same as if he was after getting out of the tractor. <laughs> he put his arms around me, he's a mental man. Congratulations, Sean. Crowd of Gossens, unbelievable, unbelievable. Poor Mayo. Imagine losing the fucking row as well. He says, Lord Jesus. <laughs> so an hour and a half later, we're still standing at the side of the road, okay? And so much for the walk and for the bite to eat. But you're looking, that's the way it is, you know. And um, I truthfully would love to see, you know, I'd love to see Mayo break that hoodoo. There was an awful task ahead of them against Dublin, a woeful task. But it's nothing, it can be done and it will happen sometime. I'm not so sure it'll be given up easy by Dublin, it won't. But look, at they have a great chance, they're playing great football. And I'd dearly love to see it happening. And I'd say my son Kieran was very honoured to wear the Mayor's short junior in the, in, you know, for a couple of seasons there in junior football. And uh, great people. And um, But um, I'd love to see them bring back the Holy Grail. It'd be lovely to bring that cup across the Shannon again. But you know, Tessie Farrell, you know the Dubs, it's, they're not going to give it to them. So whatever way it go, it should be a great match. You know, it should be great. That's, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sean. You're brilliant. Sean Boyle, you'll be great with your time and look best of luck with the, in the future yeah. with the down 20s. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Lads, thank you. God bless. Thanks very much. Lad. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. 